you would turn with me this morning to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be uh, continuing our, our study. Last week we looked at uh, the first seven verses um, and the, the letter written to the church in Ephesus. So this morning we're going to be looking at the letter that was written to the church uh, in Smyrna. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me. Revelation 2, we're going to pick up in verse 8. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, um, the words will be up on the screen. If you'd like a Bible, we can get one to you. Um, but Revelation chapter 2, God's word reads, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last, Who was dead and came to life? I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And Lord, we just want to ask you this morning to... Lord, would you just honor the reading of your word? Would you go before us, Lord? Would you settle our hearts? Lord, to receive what you have for us this morning. And so, God, we thank you and we praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you might notice there in your Bible at the the top, the heading uh, probably says something like the suffering church or the persecuted church. You know, and as we looked at last week through the church in Ephesus, that that the church in Ephesus was called the loveless church, or the church that left its first love. And so while that letter to Ephesus related to things that was going on there in Ephesus, and so too, this letter to the, written to the church in Smyrna is going to tell us some specific things that they were going through. And so before we before we jump in to the particulars, there's some things I wanted to, to share with you guys because I felt like they'd be relevant. So if you pull up that first slide, um, you know, if you guys are aware that we, we have a persecuted church today. And, and there were some things as I was looking into this that, that I thought were interesting. One is that North Korea is the hardest and the worst place for a Christian to live. North Korea tops the list for the hardest place for Christians to live. And they have topped that list for 20 years. Since 2002, they've been at the top of this list. Also, there's 5,621 Christians that were martyred for their faith last year. And that is a conservative number. That's just what we can know and have documents of. There's probably more. And what's interesting is 
90% of that number is from Nigeria. Nigeria is killing more Christians than any other country right now. The third thing I'd like to point out is that there are 360 million Christians who are living in areas that are described as high levels of persecution. And that 360 million Christians uh, constitute 76 different countries. And just to put it into perspective, our country, the United States, is home to 321 million Americans. The persecuted church, right? That's not just Christians. That are the Christians that are being persecuted for their faith. It's 360 million brothers and sisters that are suffering for their faith. One in seven Christians suffers high level of persecutions. One in seven. If this is a room of 40, that would mean six of us are suffering for our And I'm not talking like, you know, people are calling you names, ridiculing you for your faith. These are people that are having to live in abject poverty, fear of being thrown in prison, fear of death because of their faith. One in seven. Every day, 13 Christians are killed for their faith. Every day, 12 churches are attacked for holding church services. And every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested for their faith. And on top of that, five more are abducted because of their faith. Martyrdom and persecution has increased more than 60% from 2020 to 2021. Persecution of the church has increased 60%. So I thought this was interesting, and, and it sounds, right, like Christian oppression, and it is, right? I mean, our Christian brothers and sisters are being oppressed around the world. However, I'd also like to point out that it's really showing Christian strength and perseverance, because here's the thing. Persecution has increased 60%, but the persecuted church has increased by 72%, In that same amount of time, since 2020, the Christian church, the persecuted church, excuse me, has increased from 260 million to 360 million. And so what does that correlate to? That tells me that if you want a church growth program, persecution is what does it. And I know this isn't easy to hear, but it's true. Because when you're being persecuted for your faith, it has to be real. Would you show that, that next slide with the map on it, please? That is a representation of the top 50 persecuted countries. Those are the countries that are persecuting the Christian church. Those are the top, 
those are the top 50. Like I said, the, the 260 million number comes from 76 different countries, but the other 26, are, they're there. But the, the, the website I pulled this from tracks the top 50 so that the other 76 aren't highlighted. I'm sorry, the other 26 aren't highlighted, but that's just kind of a, a representation of, of where persecution is, is happening And I'm not saying that what we go through on a daily basis isn't difficult. But we have brothers and sisters that are truly suffering for their faith. And this church we're going to see this morning is, being, is suffering and being persecuted for their faith. And the fact is, is that God's church grows in proportion to persecution. It always has. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but this church in Smyrna is the only church that still exists today. Those seven letters that were written, Smyrna is still there. It's called Izmir today. It's in Turkey, but it's still there. And there is still a Christian presence in that city. Coincidence? I don't know. So you can take that down. Thank you. Um... So I just wanted to kind of put those things before you to kind of give you some perspective, right? Because we're, we're going to be studying this church that existed there in, in Asia Minor, Minor during the first century when this letter was written. And they are the persecuted church, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a persecuted church today. And that this information isn't relevant for us today. So, of course, these, these letters were written specifically to these seven churches, and they were specific churches that existed there in, in Asia Minor. Um, however, there is obviously a broader application, you know, that, that, that Jesus had specific things to say to them that were relevant to them. But I think he's also trying to speak to us, right? That the word of God is relevant and important for us Today And there are things that we can learn and, and take for ourselves. So not only was it for this individual church, Smyrna, but it, it also, you know, we, we, Pastor Dean touched on this last week too, that these seven churches also can represent um, individual periods in church history, right? Where um, Ephesus would, would have most um, notably related to what we would call the um, apostolic church, which was from about 30 AD to say 100 AD, and then Smyrna would be um, perhaps relating most to the church of the Roman persecution, which took place from about 100 AD to 313 AD. But I think these letters too are also important and significant because they can speak to individual churches, right? As we read and as we study these letters, there's certainly today churches that would represent these different letters, that these letters might describe that particular church. I am sure there are churches today that would be described as a church that had left its first love, 
right? Maybe they're going through the motions and it looks great from the outside, but on the inside there's something pivotal that's missing, right? And, and, and as I just shared, there are churches today that would be described as a persecuted church. There are churches today that perhaps have compromised. There are churches today that have become corrupted. There are churches today that are dead. But you know what? There are churches today that are faithful. Philadelphia was the faithful church. And I hope and pray that we could identify ourselves as a faithful church. Not a dead one. Not a corrupted one. Not a church that's left its first love. And certainly not, hopefully, a lukewarm church, which was Laodicea, which we will see in a few weeks. But not only does this refer to individual churches that we might see today, but these letters can speak to us individually, ourselves our own lives. I might ask the question, how is your spiritual walk described? How would you define it? If you were to read one of these churches, or one of the letters to one of these churches, what would be the one that maybe most defines your spiritual walk, where you are today as a believer? Maybe I can phrase it this way. Have you left your first love? Are you being persecuted for your faith? Have you compromised somewhere? Has your faith become corrupted? Is your faith dead? Or is your faith like Philadelphia, faithful? Is your spiritual walk described as faithful? And again, hopefully not lukewarm. So as we get into this, I want you to keep these things in mind. I want you to consider maybe how these things perhaps relate to our church. But more importantly, how do these things relate to you? How does it relate to your spiritual walk? As we saw last week, If you remember, we looked at the church in Ephesus. Ephesus, the word Ephesus means desired. And I thought that was kind of interesting because it's almost as if the Lord was saying, I desire what you started out to be. They were described as the, the loveless church, the church that left their first love. It was, you know, as Pastor Dean mentioned last week, it was a large city. It was a pagan city. It was home to the, the temple um, of Diana. That temple of, of Diana was larger than a football field. But despite the pagan worship and the pagan influences, the church was doing well. Right? I mean, Jesus had some things that he commended them for. Right? He said, I know your works. 
He's like, I've, I've seen how hard you guys work. I've seen how hard you're laboring. He t- tells them that he appreciates their hard work and their effort. Right, that they were using discernment in terms of, of um, seeking out, you know, not seeking out, but like discerning false apostles that were coming into the church. They were doing things well. They had just they had left their first love. And Jesus was calling them, remember, repent, return to me. Return to that first love. You know, and here's the thing, we can love we can love serving the Lord. We can love working hard for him. We can be discerning. We can hate evil, all things that, Churfus, uh, all things that Ephesus did well. But the question is, what's the point if we don't love the Lord? What's the point if we don't love him? 1 Corinthians 13 says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, It profits me nothing, Paul says. That was Ephesus. They had all these things. And if you were on the outside of that church and you were looking in, man, they had it all together. But Paul would say that they were sounding brass and clanging cymbals. I might think of it this way. If the first mark of a true church is love, then the second mark of a Christian church is suffering. And I know you don't want to hear that, and trust me, I don't either. But if a church is going to be marked with love, it's also going to be marked with suffering. Because that's what love does. Love suffers long. So there's a couple things that I want to consider as we look at this church there in Smyrna. I want to look at some information about this church. I want to look at the, the commendation that this church was given And I want to look at the exhortation that this church is given. So some information regarding Smyrna, this this persecuted church, this suffering church. There's there's three things that that we know about this church given in our text. In verse 1 it says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, to the angel. Pastor Dean mentioned last week that it's more than probable that this angel that's being referred to here is probably the pastor or leader of the church. 
to the angel of the church. The Greek word is is agalos. It means messenger, one who is sent from God. And it could be, it could be that, that God had sent a specific angel to each one of these specific churches. But I think it's, it's probable that this was written to and referring to the pastor of the church. Church history would tell us that that pastor in Smyrna, one of them anyway, would have been Polycarp. He was a, a disciple of John the Apostle. He would have been appointed by John the Apostle um, to, to lead this, this church there in Smyrna, to pastor the church. If we have time, we'll talk more about him in a few minutes. But this letter is written to the angel of the church in Smyrna. And so the second thing we would note about, about this, this introductory or this information is not just the angel, but the city, the city of Smyrna, right? We talked about how like this, this is an actual geographical city that was there in Asia Minor at that time. Smyrna, it comes from the word myrrh. Myrrh was a, a bitter herb, a bitter herb that was often used as a burial spice. Myrrh was a, a small, thorny tree, and it would emit a fragrance when it was crushed. Interesting. When the tree is crushed, it emits a pleasant fragrance. Interesting, too, that myrrh was one of the gifts that was given by the wise men at Jesus' birth. And it was also what the women were bringing to his tomb after his death. Interesting that Jesus is described in this church as the first and the last who was dead and is alive. As I already mentioned, Smyrna was... Uh, is today Izmir, Turkey. So in the country of Turkey, the city of Izmir, Smyrna was a large port city there in the, the first century church. It was the crown jewel of the Asian province of Rome. In fact, it was often referred to as the crown city because the city circled Mount Pegasus kind of like a crown. It was a beautiful city and it also became part of the, one of the reasons why it was called the crown jewel of um, the, the Asian province on, under Rome is it became the center of Caesar worship. Imperial worship where they worshipped the emperor. In fact, it was selected out of, out of 11 cities, Smyrna was the city that got selected, that won the vote to put up a temple for the emperor and to be the center of Caesar worship. That's the city that's being written to. This large city that has that is now focusing 
their worship on the emperor, Caesar. So you get the picture how it might be difficult for the Christian church to survive? How they might be pushed out and crushed because they're not conforming to what the emperor wants? Well, not only do we have an angel that it's written to, not only do we have a a city, but we see a person there in verse 8. We see the person of Jesus Christ. And we see him there in, in three ways. First, we see his deity. Look again in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last. The first and the last. Also used in chapter 1, verse 11 where Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Used again in verse 17, Jesus says, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. This phrase is used again at the end of the book in chapter 22. Verses 13, I'm sorry, verses 12 and 13, it says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Jesus here is referencing his deity, that he is God, and that And he takes this from from Isaiah 44, verse 6. We're speaking to the prophet Isaiah. It says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, I am the first and the last. He's making a claim to deity. I am your God. Not Caesar, not Rome. I am the first and the last. He's saying, I am God. In John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. In John 14, 9, he tells Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In John 20, 28, Thomas answers and says, my Lord and my God. 1 John 5, 20 says, we are in him who is true in his, sorry, in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And Titus 3.13 says, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus here is writing a letter to this church in Smyrna and he wants to make sure they understand who he is. I am your God. I am the first and the last But not only that, 
Not only does he reference his deity, but he also references his resurrection. That he is living, he is alive. Notice what it says at the end there of verse 8. These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I love that. Was dead, past tense, not anymore. Hebrews 2.14 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had power of death, that is, the devil. We have partaken of his flesh and blood, and he himself has shared in the same, he says, that through his death he would destroy the one who had power over death, the devil. See, Jesus' resurrection guarantees our own resurrection, right? That we are awaiting a resurrection. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, shall live. How about 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 22? But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. He is the first fruits. His resurrection means we can await our resurrection. John fourteen nineteen says, A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live and you will live also, he says. Because I live, you will live also. You know, I heard it put this way once. If you're born once, you have to die twice. But if you're born twice, you only have to die once. See, if you're born twice, right? you have your physical birth, right? All of us sitting in this room, we were born. That's why we're here. Right? But that second birth, right? When, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and he's like, well, how can you... How can someone enter his mother's womb a second time and be born a second time? And Jesus, no, I'm talking spiritually. Right? If you've experienced that second birth, when you come to Jesus and you're made new in him, then you only die once. Right? It's appointed unto man once to die. If there was ever a statistic that was true, it's that one out of every one person will die. Right? It's the one guarantee in life. But you see, if you're only born once, if you never experienced that second birth in Christ, well then, you have to die twice. You see, you have your physical death that we're all probably going to experience unless the Lord wants to come back. Not yet, I guess. But... 
if you haven't experienced that second birth, there is a second death. See, the truth is, everyone will experience a resurrection. Saint and sinner alike, there will be a resurrection for everyone. John 5, 28 and 29 says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. See, there is a second death for those who are not in Christ. So all will be resurrected, some to life and others to condemnation. So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is not if we will be resurrected, but what will be we resurrected to? Life or condemnation? Jesus is referencing his resurrection to encourage this church that was facing death for their faith. He says, no, because I was resurrected, you will be resurrected to life. You need not fear death if you're in Christ. Well, we have to hurry up. He references his, his deity, he references his resurrection, but he also references his knowledge. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, I know your works. Jesus says, I know. And this isn't, this isn't the Greek word gnosko, He's not saying, uh, gnosko means to experience. I know something because I've experienced it. No, this is, this is the Greek word oido. And it means to have full knowledge and full understanding. Jesus is saying, I know. I am fully aware. I fully understand. He's telling this church and all seven of these churches, I, I know. I'm aware. I know what you're going through. I know what you're doing. There's four things that we see here that Jesus knows about this church in Smyrna. Four things that he is fully aware of. The first thing is his works, their deeds, their acts, the things that they were doing, what they are involved in. He says, I know your works. Jesus is fully aware of everything that they're doing, and not just what they're doing, but the motive behind why they're doing it. Remember the church in Ephesus? I know your works, that you labor, right? that you're patient, 
that you can't tolerate evil. Ephesus, I know these things about you, but I also know the motive behind it. And I know for you, it means you've left your first love. I know for you, you're doing all these things, but there's no love behind it. And now he tells Smyrna, I know. I know your works. I'm aware. I know the motive. Jesus said in in Matthew 6, he says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do your charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. And your father, who sees in secret himself, will reward you openly. See, it's not just Jesus saying, I know what you're doing. He says, I know the motives too. And he's like, if, you're, if your motive is to do something and then sound the trumpet so everyone knows you've done it, well, that was your reward. You received it. But if your motive is to honor the Lord, if it's to see him glorified, he sees what you're doing, even if it's in secret. He sees it. And it says he will reward you openly. Jesus has full knowledge. And that goes the same for us. He's revealing to this church in Smyrna, I know. And he's telling you this morning, I know your works. I know what you're doing. I'm fully aware. So again, the question we have to ask ourselves is who are we seeking the attention from? The things that we're doing who are we seeking the attention from? Because regardless of who we're seeking it from, Jesus knows. He's fully aware. And if we're doing it to honor him, the word says that he will reward us. But if we're doing it for man, if we're doing it for that person and that person to see us and to know that, oh, I'm such a good person, look what I did. Well, You got praise from men and you got your reward that you were looking for. Who are we seeking attention from? Jesus says, I know your works. But not only that, the second thing that we see that he knows is that he knows their tribulation. Look at verse 9 again. Not only does he say, I know your works, comma, tribulation. He's like, guys, I know. I know you're going through it. I'm aware. This hasn't escaped me. Tribulation, it's the Greek word thalipsis. Thalipsis, it means pressure, anguish, crushed. Smyrna comes from the word myrrh, myrrh, was a fragrance. The fragrance came from a tree that when was crushed, emits a fragrance. Jesus says, I know 
your anguish. I know your tribulation. I know you're crushed. Philipsis. Tribulation. It's used 45 times in the New Testament. 45 times. That tells me that the Bible has something it wants to tell us about tribulation. That it's something that, oh, I don't know, perhaps we should be familiar with. Because as believers, there's a good chance we'll experience it. So the word tells us 45 times. And so there's some things we can learn about tribulation since it's referenced so often in the New Testament. And I'm sorry, you're not going to like these. Tribulation is promised. How's that for a starter? Anguish, crushed, promised. John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Anyone else in the world? Or is it just me? It's promised, guys. You will have tribulation. It's also appointed. We're called to it. We're called to it. Anyone want to know what their calling is? Well, I can tell you one of them. It's tribulation. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Jesus was suffered for us. And he says, for this you were called. Follow in his footsteps. If he suffered, you're probably going to suffer. If you're called by him, if you belong to him. 1 Thessalonians 3.3 says that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that you were appointed to this. Paul tells the church in Thessalonica, you were appointed to this. This shouldn't shake you. These afflictions, you're called to it. It's appointed. It's also common. Tribulation is common. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, although some strange thing has happened to you. It's not strange, it's common. It's expected. How about this one? It's for others. Tribulation is for others. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in 
any trouble, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do you ever consider that maybe you're going through it just simply so that you can come alongside someone else and you can say, hey, brother, sister, I've been there. That we can say like Jesus says, I know. We might say it, Gnosko, I've experienced that. Let me come alongside you. Let me wrap my arm around you because I've been there and I know. Sometimes we have to go through it so that we can be there for someone else when they're going through it. Is that not the body of Christ? Is that not why we're here? That as we honor the Lord, we can come alongside each other and say, I've been there. Let me encourage you. Well, it also, sorry. (laughs) Not only is it for others, but it's a time for glory. Tribulation is a time for glory. Romans 5.3 says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Man, when we're going through it, when we're in anguish, when we feel like we're being crushed, and the Lord comes and puts his arm around us and says, I know that we can then turn and give glory to the Father. That we can honor him and glorify him as we're going through tribulation. Can I give you an encouraging one? It's temporary. It's temporary. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us in a far more exceeding and eternal weight in glory. But for a moment. It's temporary. And, And I know that when you're in it, it doesn't feel that way. I'm sure for our our brothers and sisters in other parts of the country that are being thrown in prison, that are being beaten, ridiculed, left for dead, I'm sure it doesn't feel like just a moment to them. When you drop that against eternity, man, it's temporary. It's temporary. And I know some of this stuff may not be the most encouraging thing for us. But our light affliction, which is but for a moment, it's working for us, he says, a more exceeding and eternal weight in glory. And the last thing before we move on, It's for godly living. Tribulation is for godly living. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
Question. Anyone desiring to live godly? Persecution. Persecution is a result of godly living. See, because when we're living for God, we are contrary to this world, and this world doesn't like that. This world wants us to conform to them, not to Christ. Well, the fourth, I'm sorry, the third thing that Jesus knows is not just their works, not just their tribulation, but their poverty. Look at their poverty. Jesus says, I know your poverty. I know your, that word in the Greek means to be a beggar. It's not just like, oh, they're poor. It means they're destitute. They have nothing. The church in Smyrna may not have been, um, sorry, the church in Smyrna may have been poor materially, but they were not poor spiritually. Notice what he says in parentheses there, right? But you are rich. Physically, yeah, they may not have had much. But you see, God's economics are different than ours. His economy works differently than ours does. See, true wealth and riches, they're not measured by earthly standards. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that through his poverty might become rich. Now, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that wealth is wrong. It doesn't mean that, that we shouldn't have money in the bank. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have or we can't have nice stuff. Maybe the Lord's blessed you with a lot of stuff. Praise the Lord for that. That's okay. We just have to make sure that we own the stuff and the stuff doesn't own us. Right? Listen, it's okay to possess stuff. It just shouldn't be the other way around. Don't let your things own you. Right? Don't let the number in your bank account rule your life. We are to rule over these things, not the other way around. Because here's the thing, 2 Peter 3, verse 10, tells us, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. You want to talk about global warming? It's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. So here's the thing. It's all firewood. Sure, your firewood might be nicer than my firewood. Maybe you have more firewood than I do. But it's all firewood. It's all kindling. It's all going to burn. 
And I'm not saying we shouldn't be good stewards of the firewood that God has given us. We absolutely should be. We should clean it, take care of it, maintain it. As long as we keep the right perspective that it's all going to burn. According to Second uh, Peter 3.10, on that day, with fervent heat, it says, Matthew 6, 19 through 21 says, not to lay up your, for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, there's the key, right? That's the part that we need to have perspective on. Where is your heart? It's not about our wealth. It's not about how much we have or how much we don't have. It's a matter of the heart. Jesus says that our heart is going to align with our treasure. So if what we treasure most in life is our worldly things, our firewood, if you will, then that's what our hearts are going to be focused on, worldly things. But if our treasure is in heaven, man, that's where our heart is. And this is what Smyrna has gotten right. Jesus says, yeah, you're poor, but you're really rich because your heart is in the right place. 1 John 2 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. You see, Smyrna gets this right. Jesus says, Listen, I, I know you're poor physically, but man, you're rich spiritually. Your treasure's in heaven, he says, and no one can take that from you. Well, let's come to the third and final thing we need to talk about. And that's the exhortation. Jesus exhorts this church. There's four things that he exhorts them with. The first is being fearful. Being fearful. Look at verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Man, Smyrna is going through it. And Jesus is like, guys, don't fear. You don't need to be afraid. The idea here is that you can be fearful... Or you can be faithful. But you can't have both. Fear and faith don't mix. If you're living in fear, then you're living without faith. However, if you're living in faith, then you have no reason to fear. Why? Because we have, we have Jesus. We have Christ. 
What can the world take from us? At most, our lives. And then we get to be with Jesus. So what did they take from us? And that is exactly what Smyrna is dealing with, right? Well, you can take my life. You can persecute me. But in the end, I get Jesus. Matthew 10, 28 says, don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body. Right? If you're going to fear something, fear the Lord. Fear him. You see, the enemy is coming. Jesus tells them, right? You're about to suffer. The devil is going to throw you in prison, he says. He's going to test you. He says, you're going to have tribulation for 10 days. I don't know what 10 days means. It could be a Jewish euphemism that, you know, 10 days is a short period of time. I mean, in the span of our lives, what is 10 days? I suppose it could be an actual 10 days. Maybe Jesus knew that there was going to be 10 specific days that they were going to go through it. I don't know. Here's what I do know, though. Either way, there's an end date. 10 days. It's temporary. It ends. It doesn't last forever. And again, he says the devil is about to. Man, I almost missed this part. Jesus knows. He tells them up front, hey, the devil's coming to throw you guys in prison. He's coming to test you. He's coming with tribulation for 10 days. And man, that comforts me that Jesus already knows. He's already aware. It's not taking him by surprise. Man, when life comes at us, it takes us by surprise. Right? We sit there, I never saw this coming. But not the Lord. Not him. He says it outright. He knows the devil's plans. And he was in complete control of the situation. Some would be in prison. Some would be tried as traitors to Rome. God knows what he's about to do. God knows when he's going to do it. God knows how long he's going to do it. And God knows the extent of it. He knows. He's aware. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when it has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The crown of life. He exhorts them to not be fearful, and then he exhorts them to be faithful. To be faithful. Remain steadfast. Yeah, even if it means prison, even if it means death. Remain faithful.
you know, the pastor of this church, Polycarp, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can, you can hear his, his story. Guards came and, and took him. And Polycarp fed them. He fed the soldiers. And after he fed the soldiers, he asked them if he could have an hour to pray. And since they had full stomachs, they granted him the hour. And they said that he prayed so fervently that those soldiers regretted having arrested him in the first place. So they take him. He stands before the pro-council who sought to persuade him to deny Christ. Pro-council says, have respect to thine old age. And other similar things like swear by the fortune of Caesar and repent. Polycarp declares, 86 years have I served him and never has he wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? So the proconsul says, well, I have wild beasts at hand. I can cast you to those if you don't repent. Polycarp answers, call them then. For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. Man. So the proconsul says again to Polycarp, Well, I will cause thee to be consumed by fire, seeing thou despisest the wild beasts. I'll consume you with fire if you don't repent. Polycarp says, thou threatens me with fire, which burns for a moment, and after a little while is extinguished, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and internal punishment reserved for the ungodly, but why tarry? Bring forth what you will. Jesus tells the church, be faithful, even unto death. Well, we're out of time. He exhorts them to be faithful. He exhorts them in verse 11 to be open. Verse 11 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. And Jesus repeats this phrase in all seven letters. You know, and I... I, I, I was thinking about that, and when Jesus repeats himself, it probably means we should be listening to what he's saying. He who has an ear, let him hear. And I think the point is simple. We need to be open and listening to what the Holy Spirit is speaking. Is he speaking to you? Is he ministering to you? Do you have an open ear where you can hear from him? We should be led, guided, directed by the Holy Spirit. Well, lastly, we are to be overcomers. Jesus exhorts this church to not be fearful. He exhorts them to be faithful. He exhorts them to be open to the Holy Spirit. And he exhorts them to be an overcomer. The end of verse 11 says, He who overcomes shall not be burnt by the second death. Hurt, sorry, by the second death. Be an overcomer. 
Anyone wearing Nikes this morning? You're wearing your overcomer shoes. That's the Greek word. Overcome means to conquer, to be victorious, to overcome. Jesus says, he who overcomes cannot be hurt by, remember that second death we talked about earlier? Right, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. If you're an overcomer, if you're victorious, the second death can't hurt you. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 says, as it is appointed for men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Those that overcome will not experience the second death. And the second death is defined for us in Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. Then the second death, sorry, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The second death is the lake of fire that burns for eternity. But man, if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, if you belong to him, if you call Jesus Savior and Lord, you're an overcomer. You're victorious. You're a conqueror. It's defined for us. 1 John 5, 5. He, who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Who's an overcomer? Those that believe in Jesus. Our faith in Jesus is what makes us overcomers. It's what makes us victorious and allows us to avoid the second death. So here's my question for you this morning as I close. You have great faith in Jesus, right? We have great faith in Jesus' ability to usher us into his kingdom for eternity, right? If, if you believe in Jesus today, right, you have faith in him that we can spend eternity with him, that he will usher us into his kingdom. So my question is, do you have that same faith in that same Jesus for whatever it is that you're facing today? If he holds your eternity Why are you worried about tomorrow? I don't know. Maybe the devil's coming for us in the next 10 days. Like he tells Smyrna. 10 days. Tribulation's coming. But we're exhorted this morning to not fear, but be faithful. To be open to what the Holy Spirit has for us and to overcome this world. So my encouragement for you this morning is press into him. You know, we may not be going through what 360 million Christians in other places in the world are going through. We may not have that kind of persecution. But we go through suffering. We have tribulation. 
man, we, we need to not worry about that and just be faithful and knowing that our faith in Jesus makes us overcomers, makes us victorious. And so, Lord, we thank you. We praise you this morning, God, for who you are. God, we thank you that you have overcome. God, we thank you that you allowed your body to be broken for us. God, that you overcame the world. And so that we now can cry out to you. And Lord, that our faith in you makes us overcomers. So God, I pray this morning, would you increase our faith? Would you remove our fear? And God, would you allow us this morning just to press into you for what you have for us? And Lord, may we honor you in the things that we do and the things that we say, Lord, how we handle the difficulties in life, Lord. May it honor and glorify you. So God, we praise you this morning. Would you go before us the rest of today? And God, would you make us like this this church in Smyrna, this church that you had no condemnation for. You only commended them and exhorted them. So Lord, may you commend and exhort us as we go from this place today. God, be lifted up in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.